0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 14, The Underground Railroad Abolitionists, the Fugitive Slave Act, and the Road to Freedom. For today's episode, we move away from the pile of names and dates of politics as much as possible so we can discuss flight from slavery. As part of the Compromise of 1850, Congress had enacted a stronger law allowing slave owners to recover any of their slaves that fled. Without exaggerating, this lit a slow burning fuse that will in part end with a surprising amount of violence, a massive shake up of the political landscape, and the creation of a far stronger, ever broader, and more confident anti slavery coalition. It begins with the presidency of Millard Fillmore, though almost by accident, and this story will continue through the presidencies of Pierce and Buchanan. Spoilers. As Vice President, Fillmore had been the president of the Senate during the long-troubled debate over the Compromise Bill. He lent his voice and support to the effort to pass it, partly because Texas was then threatening serious violence on the issue of New Mexico, which is a whole side issue I shall cheerfully ignore. Further, as a longtime member of the Congress, he felt obligated to follow Taylor's lead in accepting that body's law and continuing to enforce it. A real question, however, is whether or not Fillmore went more than a little too far in pursuing the law, most specifically over the question of the Fugitive Slave Act. Now, the Act was just one part of the Compromise of 1850. It hadn't even been too prominent an issue originally, but it rapidly became deeply unpopular and controversial in the North. A number of existing factors played into this shift, but equally important was the series of extremely visible actions undertaken by slave owners and backed by the federal government. Now, to begin with, it should be understood that slave owners had always, in theory, been allowed to recover escaped slaves, even if they fled to a free state. For a minor point that will eventually become very important in the Dred Scott decision, masters who brought slaves onto free state land might inadvertently manumit them. Abolition-minded men took every chance to sue for the freedom of individuals on that basis wherever they could. However, an escaped slave legally did not become free simply by fleeing to a free state. Additionally, state lawmakers had not universally or automatically granted escaped slaves the right of a trial. And here was a small but crucial point that turned into a series of crises. In fact, under the old system, states had often been rather inconsistent and happily ignorant of these matters, not really wanting to argue over it. Masters sometimes just grabbed their escaped human property, or claimed to be doing so, and just left again. In practice, however, it proved very difficult to claim or reclaim slaves in much of the North, as local officials simply didn't care and wouldn't lift a finger on behalf of a slave owner from the South. New York City was one of the exceptions. Slaves often did hide in the large urban agglomeration, and sizable free African American population dwelt there. But many of its leading citizens and merchants as well as the powerful Tammany Hall Democrats, and Mayor Fernando Wood in particular, well, they set themselves dead against abolition. They had priceless commercial ties with the plantations and the cotton it produced, and they worked very hard to make plantation owners happy. They aided slavers in recapturing any escapees. City officials tended to look the other way if slave owners brought bondsmen to the city voluntarily, although this did, as mentioned, legally manumit them but no action would be taken unless abolitionists or sympathizers pushed the issue to the attention of the judiciary. But whether officials were fair or foul, the new Fugitive Slave Act changed all of that, and in doing so it created a new system that could not be ignored by state authorities or the general public. Now here I should pause to note a slight clarification of the story lest I mislead you. Although the overall compromise of 1850 favored free interests and came primarily from the pen of Senator Henry Clay, The fugitive slave act was a creation of senator james mason of virginia the latter made it a necessity to pass the compromise at all he refused to budge without it in doing so mason and many pro-slavery southerners arguably traded a priceless political opportunity in exchange for driving a rusty nail into their own foot the story of that nail is what we'll explore today in theory slave owners were now required to present themselves and their recaptured slave to a magistrate who would then determine if the, quote-unquote, escaped slave was actually that, or instead a free man or woman. However, there were a number of problems with this which turned into serious issues. The hearing was not a trial, and it did not include legal protections. And further, the magistrates were not judges, or at least not necessarily judges, and they did not need properly delivered and documented testimony. It became frightfully difficult for an African-American man or woman to obtain freedom if they found themselves in the clutches of these magistrates. Although this was not necessarily a new problem, these people would most likely need quote-unquote white allies to intercede as soon as possible, lest the magistrate in question accept whatever one-sided evidence was offered without further ado. In this era, even most American courts, though ostensibly intended to provide impartial justice, would not allow an African-American to testify. This does not mean that the magistrates empowered by the Fugitive Slave Act necessarily had to follow this imbalance, but equally, nothing under the law required them to deliver an honest verdict. And not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, who exactly do you think would line up to become such officials? Certainly not abolitionists, if you take my meaning. Worse yet even many non-abolitionists in the northern states recoiled when they discovered that the law provided those magistrates double payment to send a man or woman or child into slavery than to judge them free was this really an honest reimbursement of the supposed extra paperwork needed or a tidy little bribe for deciding in favor of slavery in addition, what makes this even worse was that it essentially implied something very dangerous in American politics, and which would eventually create the self-destructed legacy of the Dred Scott case. It assumed, at a basic level, that African Americans did not deserve legal protections. Mason, most slave-owning southerners, and apparently now American law, treated freedom as an anomalous condition instead of the norm. This probably reflected the inherent assumptions of Mason's plantation-based culture and African slavery, but not all Americans agreed. The more vigorously the Fugitive Slave Act was enforced, the worse it would look. Finally, there's the non-trivial wrinkle that very often slave catchers or bounty hunters would be working from rather vague descriptions written down rather than from memory. Few African Americans, free or slaves, had so extremely distinctive features as to completely exclude fellows in their community. In reality, almost anyone fitting the rough guidelines of age, sex, and build might potentially be taken instead. This goes even farther, into an ugly truth often left out of histories of this period. The existence of individuals or gangs that deliberately targeted free blacks and sold them into slavery. A fugitive slave, after all, could be quite wary. And tricky to find. A man born and raised in freedom might discount the notion of being grabbed and sold. Many of the men willing to commit these awful crimes were not exactly what you'd call respectable, and even in extremely pro slavery regions would not be thought so. Now interestingly too, they also seem to have primarily or exclusively targeted free men living in the North rather than free African Americans in the South, although it is possible that we just don't have equal records in this situation. Now, these acts were seen as vile across the land. But enough greedy men existed to make it possible. In addition, prosecutions for these crimes did happen, and on the whole the practice was not so prevalent as to be a constant physical threat. But there would certainly have been a persistent emotional fear weighing on the minds of free African Americans everywhere. Once a man or woman or child had been so taken, whether by a magistrate or not, the possibility of getting free again were slim. Much like the trade in stolen human goods, too, stolen human lives were sold to the unscrupulous, with a false front of legitimacy. Then perhaps they might change hands again, as traders moved the human chattel deeper within the slave system. We should also probably guess that many of the purchasers of kidnapped victims likely had some suspicion that they had just bought free men, too, And might want to move and resell quickly to dump any risk. And even if the bondsman was legitimately a slave under the law, they had tasted freedom and would not easily be forced back into slavery. Cutting off any possible escape was a very common response among the planter class. For a good example, or perhaps more accurately a terrifying example of a free man being reduced to slavery, take a look at the life of solomon northrup in his autobiographical work 12 years a slave he tells the story of being kidnapped and sold southward northrup spent well 12 years of his life laboring as a slave before being rescued by friends and his story has much to tell about how slaves lived and survived on the day-to-day basis the short version is that he did not have a particularly pleasant time northrup's kidnapping in particular was as easy as getting him drunk and dragging him southward and thereafter, there was no recourse except to sneak a message home and hope. You may imagine that events like these could prompt us response in the North, regardless of whether it would involve the criminal gang or the ostensible legal authority of a magistrate. If so, you guess correctly. Over time, northern states began to pass what were known as personal liberty laws, which restricted the ability of slave catchers to simply grab people and run, and required much more of magistrates or even open trials. The exact nature of these laws differ across different states. Many of the free states did have some law on the books before the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Act. These would only grow in scope during the 1850s, despite a stream of presidents trying stubbornly to enforce it. Immediately following the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, there was a distinct uptick in the number of slave recaptures. Many of these involved people who had years or decades of life in the North, and often on flimsy evidence or none at all. As said, it proved extremely easy for slave owners to claim presumed slaves regardless of any evidence or testimony, and likewise difficult for free men to defend themselves at all. Hundreds of African Americans were dragged south, and thousands more fled farther north, either to upstate regions, or Boston, or even Canada. For just one example, we now turn to the wild adventures of William and Ellen Craft. Now Ellen was in fact born with three-quarters of European ancestry, and in point of fact her owner, Major James Smith, was... also her father. Yes, that's incredibly screwed up, but also uncomfortably common in the South. She was given as a gift and raised to work in the household of her half-sister which is also incredibly screwed up like like wow i don't even know what to say about that one however there she met a fellow slave named william craft who worked as a carpenter in macon they were married insofar as slaves could get married and in 1848 the crafts contrived to escape to freedom to do this they came up with the simplest scheme imaginable the two simply went north But lest you think this was merely an impulse, you should understand the pair planned very, very well for the journey. Since, of course, two slaves going north would have been pretty conspicuous, they instead used Ellen's looks to their advantage. She was so fair-skinned that she didn't arouse particular suspicion. To further enhance the disguise, Ellen pretended to be a young gentleman rather than a lady, Anyone looking for two married slaves might ignore a plantation owner's son and his manservant. They proceeded to travel north in considerable and hilarious style, eventually reaching Pennsylvania. Then it was on to Massachusetts, where they fell in with the church of Theodore Parker. Now, Parker was a Unitarian minister who had left strict Calvinism behind for a very radical interpretation of Christianity, as well as being closely connected to the transcendentalist literary and social movement. One of his major causes was indeed abolitionism, and here naturally is where the Crafts came in. Parker encouraged the two Crafts to speak out about their experience and practically put them on display, which probably wasn't the wisest idea for a pair of fugitive slaves. Before too long, this not too surprisingly attracted the interest of the Crafts' legal owner, who promptly dispatched bounty hunters to claim the pair and return them to slavery just a month, in fact, after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 went into effect. These men, well, they found they had bitten off much more than they could chew, and they retreated under threat. However, the ruckus got the attention of President Fillmore. Here we face a question about Fillmore's motives, which are complicated. From a legal perspective, the law was being openly challenged in a major American city. He couldn't ignore that kind of response easily, precisely because it had been very public. Fillmore wasn't pro-slavery, at least in theory, but events put him into the position of defending the laws of the land. He intervened to recapture the Crafts by the virtue of, well, federal marshals, but as it happened, the effort swiftly became irrelevant. The Crafts cheerfully boarded a ship bound for England's shores, thus ending the issue for now. Theodore Parker, however, issued a personal message of defiance to Fillmore for his role in this mess, and make no mistake, Parker will return in our story. The craft stayed in Europe until the dawn of the Civil War as well. Within six months, however, more such dramas followed, even just in Boston alone. Now, Massachusetts and Boston were not all universally abolitionist, there existed a divide between conservative Whig politics and the much more radical abolitionist element. But that divide started to shrink very rapidly as both the federal government and city officials took a harsher line on slavery. That is exactly what happened in the unfortunate case of Thomas Sims. Thomas Sims escaped slavery in Savannah in early 1851. He managed to stay concealed in the hold of a ship for two weeks but even after being discovered, he fled when the ship docked in Boston. However, by April, his owner's agents alerted the Boston authorities, who then captured Sims. In a foolish display of symbolic power, the doors of the courthouse were chained shut to prevent any rioters from freeing Sims as had happened in the past. Additionally, a hundred or more soldiers and police guarded it. Upon being judged a slave, Despite a spirited defense put forward by sympathetic lawyers, Sims was remanded to the South and slavery. Fillmore wanted to avoid a repeat of the crafts and other incidents, and quickly dispatched Federal troops. In military formation, they dragged the unfortunate captive to the ship that would bear him back to Savannah. This did not exactly go over well with the majority in Massachusetts not when popular and armed mobs attempted to physically prevent slaves from being so returned. Boston, if you remember anything from the Revolutionary War, was no stranger to staring down bayonet-wielding agents of government authority, and no friend to them either. Even the writer Henry Wadsworth Longfellow took up his busy pen once more to curse that his beloved republic had become, in his words, a hunter of slaves. And he was not alone a wide array of other events would follow all over the North. One might discover that the particular nature of the Fugitive Slave Act greatly offended and inflamed Northerners while largely failing to recapture slaves. And, in addition, it made Fillmore look weak, and perhaps harmed his reputation somewhat unfairly, for he was a man of real ability but also in a very poor political position. He vainly tried to hold his party and country together, and enforced the law that Northerners as well as Southerners had in principle agreed to. We could tell a much different story of his career, as a man who devoted himself so thoroughly to public service that he was one of the least wealthy former presidents in history. He struggled to lead a country that was divided, and a decade away from tearing itself in half, while receiving no small amount of contempt from the first day. But let us leave Fillmore's swiftly dying career, and return for a moment to discussing anti-slavery activism. Massachusetts would continue to be a very visible symbol of abolitionism, but it's worth noting that it, and New England generally, was more important as a destination for escaped slaves rather than helping them escape in the first place. Now, not too many people know this, but New England isn't very close to the South. Most slaves who escaped did so across the mid-Atlantic region, or sometimes the Midwest. While the number of slaves who successfully escaped was proportionately small, tens of thousands in total did manage to flee to freedom across these lands. Here lay cities such as Cincinnati, Pennsylvania, and New York, and these were the real centers of activity of the anti-slavery movement in practice as opposed to theory. Now, there were more than a few connected individuals inside the South. However, the broad base of sympathizers who enabled scapes to escape bondage lived in the borders in Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. Of course, there were also a great many people who simply looked the other way when they witnessed anything. And of such things are the Underground Railroad of legend formed. Well, sort of. See, the Underground Railroad, in fact, was not nearly as impressive as the Underground Railroad of fiction. Even in its own day, the railroad was far more hype than reality. As a group, it was never more than a very loose-knit network of like-minded fellows instead of a secret squad of militants. Like Patriots before the Revolutionary War, they formed small committees of correspondence to advance the cause. Their actual impact is a bit more questionable, Escapes from slavery were never more than a pinprick around the periphery, probably not amounting to more than a few thousand per year, and that's a high estimate. Of those, almost all came from the border states and not the Deep South. Furthermore, it's actually not at all clear how many of these escapes were in reality related to the Underground Railroad's activities, although it could not have been very many, for there simply weren't enough people involved. Even a 1,000 fugitives a year was far beyond their financial ability to aid and manage, and that aid usually appeared when an escapee was already within a free state. Yet this isn't to say that the railroad didn't have its successes, and every escape was a small stinging rebuke toward slavery, and proof that all African Americans, too, wanted their freedom and deserved it. For one final story, I'm going to leave you with the tale of of Henry Box Brown, which is an amusing and rather celebrated bit of lore. Henry Brown lived in Richmond, and therefore had the advantages of an urban environment, which undoubtedly helped him effect his escape. Further, Mr. Brown was hired out instead of being employed on a plantation or in his master's household, and so he had the opportunity to make arrangements and plan. This became important because Brown was in fact paying his owner in exchange for the man, Mr. Cottrell, not to sell his, that is, Brown's, wife away. You see, as we've mentioned, slave marriages weren't recognized under the law, which is just yet another horrible aspect of the system. But Cottrell decided not to uphold the agreement, which is a polite way of saying that he sold Nancy Brown to another man along with Brown's children, because have I mentioned how incredibly warped all of this is? Jeez. With no hope of ever seeing them again, and discovering that his master was a cheat, Brown decided that it was time to escape in 1850. With some help, including notably from a white man named Samuel Smith, Henry Brown managed to put together a literal box. It was just barely large enough to contain him and a small cache of food and water, and tight enough not to reveal evidence of his presence, although it obviously wasn't airtight. The box was then addressed to Philadelphia. Henry simply climbed inside, and thus mailed himself to freedom, and we should assume that he took some pleasure in attaining that object with great ingenuity. Now, when I said this box was just big enough for him, I mean that according to the measurements reported later, it was less than three cubic feet of space. Henry would have had to scrunch up pretty darn tight just to fit it all, and the only protection he had from being turned upside down was a this-and-up label, which was naturally ignored for half the trip because package delivery appears immune to the tide of human progress. Finally, though, he did reach Pennsylvania's soil and after some wrangling was delivered to the Anti-Slavery Society. He was, finally, free, and also probably very thirsty. Now that wasn't quite the end of the story. Brown went on to have interesting adventures of his own in freedom but I want to bring up Samuel Smith. Before the escape, Smith visited Philadelphia to make those arrangements. Afterwards, Smith tried to ship several more slaves north using the same trick, but this time they were caught, followed shortly by Smith himself. He would end up spending time in prison for his trouble. Such was the reward of sending a man to freedom in these days. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast. This isn't going to be the end of discussing abolitionism and the political transformations it encouraged. So I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss the downfall of the parties.